We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast, Daily Euros edition, and it's me, Tim Stillman, in the presenter's chair at the moment, as Elliot takes a well-earned long weekend with his long-suffering wife for her birthday. Um, so as I said, that's me, Tim Stillman, presenting, and as always, we have our uh, our in-house expert, Phil Costa, with us to talk about today's games. Phil, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Very hot and sweaty. Um in my uh, little Berlin studio apartment that feels like a sauna at the moment, but can't complain really. Another three good games to to talk about and get our teeth into. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Three games that were, um, that, that I think were all quite interesting in their own way. And I figured we'd start with uh, Denmark v Belgium, actually. I, that, that was the game that kind of grabbed me the most. I think with everything around that game and, and all of the, um, I, it's a bit glib to say narrative, but with everything around that game and and the way the game turned out as well, I think that's the most interesting. So let's uh, let's crack on with that one. I was listening to my shame. I was listening to a rival Euro Dailies podcast um, for which I must chastise myself, the Totally Football Show yesterday. And they had a Danish journalist on and they asked him, you know, what's the feeling in Denmark around this game with the whole Christian Eriksen situation? What's the feeling with the players? Do people even care about this game? Do people even think it should be played? And he said, yes. He said, in fact, it's kind of gone the other way. People were really, really up for this game and they really want to see a show, um, you know, for kind of Christian Eriksen. And my word did that show in the first 30 minutes of this game. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you know, I'm not sure if you heard the podcast from yesterday, but me and Elliot spoke about is sort of Denmark. It's not that they lack quality, but it was more of just kind of what's happened. And maybe we thought that it would be difficult to raise their levels again. And, and to be honest, I think I'd probably misread that situation. You know, I'm not really in the environment of, of the Danish national team. I haven't really been keeping up with too many journalists from that side. Um, and a couple of people pointed out to me on Twitter afterwards that, you know, um, you know, we respect your, you know, your respect of us and everything, but we're, we're fully up for this game and we're ready 
um, you know, to have a real go at Belgium. And and that absolutely showed again um, in the particularly in the sort of the, the first 20, 25 minutes. I thought they they flew out of the box. They were pressing. They were physical. They absolutely deserved that early goal. And it was just like, wow, um, I, you know, actually quite felt a bit emotional, you know, mm. uh, just in terms of the occasion and, and the, you could see what it meant to the players and to the fans. And yeah, when, you know, when Paulson scored that early goal, I got goosebumps and was, was really sort of connected in that moment. And I, I really enjoyed their first half performance. Do you think it feels on a number of levels, it feels really um, harsh to criticise them for their approach for both footballing reasons, because Belgium are really good and for emotional reasons, but do you, do you get the sense that maybe they went too hard too soon? Potentially. I mean, to even be playing at this kind of level after what's happened to them in such a short space of time, I mean, they have such sort of strength and determination in their sort of collective. And I really admire that. And I've got, you know, not a single bad word to say about any of them, but you could really tell how much they were putting into that opening stage and there was a small thought in the back of my head that was like, don't go too soon, don't go too soon, because, you know, we've seen it before in sort of FA Cup ties in the past and maybe Champions League ties when there's maybe not an underdog, but a, a favourite, which was obviously Belgium. And, you know, they get kind of shocked by a quick start, a quick opening, and then obviously uh, the legs go and, and quality tells in the end. But I, you know, I really enjoyed their performance and tactically as well. It was it was really clever with how they managed to stifle the Belgian midfield. Yeah, and I was I was going to come on to um, you know talking a bit more. I mean, there, there's loads of soft factor stuff to this game, but talking uh, you know moving on a little bit more tactically. I mean, and obviously the really heartwarming scenes as well when they kicked the ball out of play in the tenth minute and had that round of applause for Ericsson, who's in hospital like 500 meters away and potentially would have heard that applause, which is you know, hugely emotional, just absolutely extraordinary to witness. But obviously, even leaving aside the significant emotional side, Ericsson is probably Denmark's best player and their most kind of central player, really. So, and and that in itself, missing him for a game like this was huge. How how do you think, um, what do you think Denmark's strategy was kind of tactically for replacing uh, what they lost in Ericsson? No, I mean, as you mentioned, Ericsson is their best player. He's kind of given the the keys basically to to the side, and as you know, most of his damage comes with the ball at his feet. So maybe, um, well, not maybe. Denmark probably thought, you know, instead of um, relying on some magic on the ball, why don't we just press like maniacs off it? I mean, the left side in particular, um, I thought. Joachim Mähler was was really good down the left with Mikael Damsgaard. I thought they had a really nice uh, sort of connection and they were giving Tom Mounier a lot of problems because Dries Mertens is not exactly um, so diligent in his defensive work. Um, but in particular, I thought Tielemans did not have a second on that ball in the first half. I mean, as soon as he touched it, there was Hoybjerg, there was Braithwaite, there was Delaney pushing forward. You know, Paulson has always been a hard-working forward so naturally, with uh, alongside Dendonka, who's more destroyer uh, in terms of a midfielder, Tielemans was their main guy to sort of set the tempo, and he just got nothing in that first half. And I thought that was really intelligent from from Denmark and their manager to kind of isolate him, um, and they found a lot of joy from that. Clearly, and one of the one of the reasons I kind of 
doubt Belgium going on to win this tournament despite their talent is that defence um, and not just that defence but the fact that they're kind of without or well he came on as a sub today but Axel Witzel who's hugely important in terms of protecting that defence and giving that team a bit of balance even though they lost in the end do you think that the way Denmark caused trouble for that Belgium defence maybe points to or at least I mean I'm not sure other teams need that much of a pointer to know but do you think that really illustrated that that this Belgium defence can be got at? Yeah definitely I mean obviously Roberto Martinez plays this kind of 3-4-2-1 and it's good in a sense where you can cover a lot of the pitch at once. And, you know, um, a lot of managers, you know, especially Thomas Tuchel, when he's, you know, won the Champions League. So that's arguably the greatest sort of uh, brownie point for the formation is that you can cover lots of space at once. But one or two passes that can sort of break the lines and you're in trouble. And especially when you've got Jan Vertonghen and Toby Alderweireld covering lots of space out wide, a lot of teams will will be looking at that and thinking, okay, we can get to this side. And like you said, without Witzel kind of screening there, it was very easy for Denmark to get through in that first half. And honestly, I'm not the biggest fan of Jason Denier anyway. I think he's, you know, fine, but not amazing. And I definitely think they can be got at, which is why a lot of Belgium's emphasis is on their sort of forward thinking and their, and their attacking play. So, you know, uh, Denmark kind of isolated them and they showed it a few times in the first half that maybe they're they're there to be got at yeah definitely but but obviously the game does turn around in the second half and have almost this like economies of scale effects where just as Denmark's legs are beginning to go Belgium bring on Kevin De Bruyne which almost should be against the rules really um but but with Belgium's equalizer when it when it first happened I thought you know De Bruyne's part in that is obvious and fantastic but I thought, um, and I'm kind of glad that he went on to score the winner because I was thinking about this podcast and I thought, oh, but I really want to talk about Lukaku's part mm-hmm. in that Belgium equaliser because um, I watched some of his goal. I don't watch Serie A that much, but I watched his goals for Inter this year and the, yeah. the number of goals where he takes a loose ball near the halfway line and just goes like a locomotion train at the defence. And that's kind of exactly what he does here. Um you know, in terms of Lukaku, I mean, it, as as much as we're looking at Belgium's defence as a, a potential weak point, I mean, in Lukaku, how does how does he stack up to you in terms of Lewandowski, Kane, and Mbappe? You know, up there with the best in the world in that kind of company. Yeah, for sure, it's without a doubt. Like you said, he's just come off an incredible season for Inter, um, and he's in the last sort of twelve, eighteen months, his game has just reached. An- a ridiculous level. I mean, obviously there were criticisms of him in England, a bit maybe a bit tired and lazy about his first touch. Um, but he's always scored goals. Like, I mean, if you compare him to other strikers, he's he's before the age of you know X or whatever. He's beating this record and scored more goals than this player, like Ronaldo and Messi, and scored more international goals than all of them combined. You know, he's just. A numbers machine and like you said when he's running at full pelt like that there's not honestly for me there's probably three defenders in the world that can keep up with him like that and you know he's just frightening and with this kind of form and sort of clinical nature up front now Belgium will always fancy their chances and I think as you said De Bruyne had a obviously a huge role to play in that goal with a 
you know, eyes in the back of his head kind of pass and sort of coolness to find that that ball in the end when maybe a lot of players would have gone for goal. But for sure, Lukaku plays a, a big role in that because he just worries people. Um, and that is such a useful trait to have in a striker because, you know, defenders and goalkeepers will, will always second guess themselves, you know. And um, in terms of, I mean, Belgium, one of the favourites, they're the top ranked team in the world. So, of course, um, they're they're one of the favourites. But, I mean, as much as I've kind of downplayed, I mean, I, I, I'm talking about them going on and winning it. I wouldn't be surprised to see them in the final or something like that. But as much as I don't like that defence, I do kind of like for them that they've got through the group quite easily without De Bruyne, without Witzel. Uh, Witzel, sorry, um, two of their most important players. And then De Bruyne comes on. Um, today and well I think what his his kind of influence is there for all to see and I don't know about you but I'm I'm really excited now he's not doing it for Manchester City and it doesn't depress me I'm so excited to see what he'll bring to the tournament now he's just such a good player Um, I I find it really weird when people criticize him they call him like a robot and he's only got like one thing in his locker like cross to the back post but just really just watch him He's so good. He's everything you want in a modern midfielder. Energy, technique on both feet, power. Um, He can shoot on both feet. He's got the pass on both feet. And he's just, there's literally no fault in his game for me. And as you mentioned, you know, the assist was was just brilliant. Showed so much awareness and calm in, in a sort of a frantic moment. And even the goal, like to be able to run onto that and strike it with his, you know, so called weaker foot. Just so much quality and he brings maybe end product to the team that Belgium didn't quite have in Yannick Carrasco and Andries Mertens and Torgan Hazard up to this point. I mean, I'm not doubting their credentials. They can obviously do it, but he's just a a certainty, really. Um, If games go by when he doesn't contribute, it's kind of strange, you know. So, yeah, it's a welcome addition back into the side. And I think considering he got... Um, you know, the living daylight squashed out of him by Antonio Rudiger just a few weeks back uh, to come back and, and do this was was mightily impressive. And um, Denmark, of course, they'll they'll finish um, with a game against Russia. Um, not totally out of it yet, given the situation with third place teams. I mean, they're on a minus two goal difference, so they'd probably have to they'd probably have to bring that up to a plus I think to stand any chance do you do you give them any chance for getting through to the knockouts I mean obviously when this best third place team is this kind of rule is still in play they've always got a chance um, and obviously with the last game being against Russia you know who are on three points like you know they'll they'll fancy themselves at home you know they could make it a really um, or are they at home I'm not sure um, against Russia it might be in St. Petersburg I'm not not particularly sure about the the last game, but they'll fancy themselves because I've got a lot of time for them. They have a lot of good players. I mean, Hoiberg and and Delaney is a really solid midfield. They have some good young players in Mikael Damsgaard, um, you know, Andreas Skov Olsen, these kind of people. And they can do damage. I think their lack of a a true number nine, like a consistent goal scorer could hurt them. Um, But I don't particularly think Russia have that either. I mean, they have Juba, who's kind of, this crazy battering ram of a number nine, but he doesn't really score that often. So look, I mean, they've got nothing to lose and they can chuck everything into that game. And and whatever happens, I think they've captured the imagination and and hearts of a lot of people because as we mentioned, to to be able to even come out and play at this standard 
um, after what's happened in, in such a short space of time is, is really a credit to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think last one on Belgium really is, is the absurd depth that they've got. Obviously, they bought um, De Bruyne on for this game, but even in their first game, like Castagna picks up a big injury, no problem, we'll just drop uh, Mounier in, um, who's, a, who's a, you know, a pretty decent fullback himself. Um, but I'm interested in Eden Hazard, actually, because he, he's come off the bench in both games. And I know there are fitness concerns over him anyway. So I think he'll keep that super sub uh, or that potential super sub kind of role. You, you mentioned Dries Mertens earlier. And um, and I know Belgium have been playing with him for quite a while because Hazard's been out so much. And one of the things that's interesting about Lukaku kind of going supernova into in a front two with Lauter and Martinez how important do you think Dries Mertens' role actually is? And even if Hazard was fit, do you think he would get his place back off of Mertens? I mean, it's a difficult one. I think the luxury of having such good squad depth is that you can kind of drop people in and, you know, choose your your fighters basically based on what you feel you can take from the game. Um, yes, it's true. Mertens kind of plays sort of around Lukaku, which which can help him. But I think we spoke about this with Elliot, you know, Eden Hazard, it's not the Eden Hazard we remember from Chelsea, unfortunately. I think injuries have hit him quite hard, um, particularly with his fitness and sharpness, not just, you know, uh, a natural decline of a player, but he looks quite chunky and slow at times. But as we, you know, we spoke about, you just need one moment of quality from him. And that's why this role kind of suits him perfectly, because even if he's not the dribbly, you know, creative player that we remember so much and so fondly, all it takes is one moment uh, to decide a game. And even looking beyond Eden Hazard, they, they have Christian Benteke if they want to go long. They have, you know, Leandro Trossard who can kind of play that role behind the striker. Even Jeremy Doku, who is a really exciting young player, kind of explosive, direct. So, you know, looking at their options... They can kind of go in a, a number of directions, a number of ways. And, you know, um, whether it's Mertens, Hazard, Carrasco, whoever's going to start, really, I think they can all do uh, a job in supporting Lukaku, really. And I think that's such an advantage for Roberto Martinez. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was, um, I, I don't know if fun game is the right way to put it, but um, I, I thought that was that was one of the more absorbing games I've seen in the tournament. Um, probably for reasons uh, not just related to football. But let's move on to Netherlands-Austria, which is the game we've just watched um, as we're recording. And Netherlands have now, uh, they won that fairly straightforward 2-0 victory um, for Netherlands and they're through now to the next round. I, um, I, I saw someone tweet earlier, Netherlands are the Brighton of international football in that they're quite good fun. They go forward a lot, but man, do they need a more clinical forward. And uh, the, the, my my impression after the Ukraine game, Phil, was, wow, they're, they're actually really good fun, and this is exactly why they can't win an international tournament. What what have you made of Netherlands so far? Because they, they've actually gone through this group quite easily now. Yeah, I think a lot of people, including myself, maybe uh, owe Frank de Boer an apology. Um, I think they've surprised a lot of people with this kind of frantic, open, expansive style. And they've been really, really fun to watch, particularly with the wingbacks, like storming forward at every opportunity. I think that's been uh, sort of a, a real bright spark for them. And I've really enjoyed watching them 
you know, it's kind of, they finished strongly in, in qualifying, but I just found them kind of boring. Um, mm. I don't know if that's fair, you know, uh, if it's fair on them, because at the end of the day, your job is to qualify. But I don't know, I, I never left those games feeling like, wow, I've got a good feeling about the Netherlands, but I'm not sure what's clicked. I think the midfield three in particular with with uh, Jeannie Wijnaldum, Frankie de Jong and, and Martin de Roon has just been so good. They're such a beautifully balanced trio. Like each player brings like a little bit of something. I mean, Frankie de Jong, there were some moments today where you just thought like, wow, this guy's uh, next level. The way he just sort of glides past players and his touch and his vision is so nice. Um, but I thought, you know, Jeannie Wijnaldum was the man of the match today. I thought he was an absolute Duracell bunny and he's been you know, captain fantastic for them. So, you know, man for man, I think they have a very decent side. And as you mentioned, they've kind of got through this group with relative ease. I know they had that kind of nervy last 10, 15 minutes against Ukraine when they conceded the the two goals. But I think over the course of the game, they were much better than Ukraine, mm. even though they had their moments. And, you know, maybe they like this position of being not underdogs, but going kind of under the radar um especially they've had a, a, some brilliant games at home the atmosphere has been great so yeah maybe this is an, a nice position for them considering it's the first time they've been in the knockout stages of euro since 2008 so yeah we'll see we'll see but for sure they want to keep an eye on yeah absolutely and, and you mentioned genie one album there i'm just interested in your views on or or i i guess um an explanation on how he, he does i think for Liverpool, he's done such a specific but really, really good job. But he does he seems to do a very different job for Netherlands. What I, I wondered if you could explain the distinction between what he does for Liverpool and what he does for his country. I mean, for Liverpool, I think you've mentioned it a few times on the podcast. He's very much, um, we need you running here. We need you pressing here. And basically, your job is to recycle the ball, pick it up. Um, you know, pen when we're penning teams in, you know, it's your job to be able to collect that from 25, 30 yards, win the duels and just keep it going again. But, it's you know, people forget that when he was sort of breaking, you know, not breaking out, but he was when people realised he was far too good to be playing in the Eredivisie before his Newcastle move, he was kind of like a support striker, attacking midfielder. And even at Newcastle, he played this role. Um, so he's obviously got it in his locker and I think you can see it now for the Netherlands when he's given a little bit more freedom, a little bit more license to maybe get forward. He's a really intelligent player and he's not just energy and, and tenacity. You know, he's really sort of good on the ball and his, his movement in particular, you know, ghosting into, into that left-hand channel is really good. And I think, you know, the, the way Frank de Boer is, is, is utilising him has given them a, a sort of an added edge from midfield because Frankie de Jong, for all his quality, will never really get you goals from the midfield. Um, the same with Martin de Rohn, but I think Jeannie Wijnaldum is going to crop up with, with one or two in, in this tournament and, and that's why. Yeah, and, and speaking of players um, uh, playing different roles for club and country, um, David Alaba for Austria, really interesting one, because Austria, as I understand it, Austria use him usually not even as a left winger, but more of like an inside left, almost like a number 10. But in this tournament, they, they've moved him around a fair bit, um, somewhere between the centre of a back three and the left side of a back three. 
I have to say, I don't really understand playing him in the centre of a back three. What what have you made about um, his role and and I guess the the shift, the constant shifting between that central pin and the left sided pin of of the defence? What what do you think they're trying to achieve with that? I mean, I'd firstly just like to say that I've been really disappointed in Austria. I think they they have a good squad with a lot of you know impressive players in the Bundesliga, and as you mentioned, Alaba is usually either playing in midfield or as the, the number 10 for Austria. But, you know, after his, he's been sort of converted into the back uh, line for Bayern, maybe Austria thought, OK, maybe we can get him influencing play a lot deeper because in midfield, they have Marcel Sabitzer and Konrad Leimer, who are, you know, uh, the two central midfielders for RB Leipzig. They, they know each other. They know their roles. They both press really well. They're energetic. So maybe they thought, Let's give Alaba a bit of freedom in the in the central role here, um, and maybe he can sort of distribute from deep and get us going. But you're right; I just think he's been kind of wasted. Um, they don't need him there, Austria. I think the issue they have is is progressing the ball further forward and making chances. And even as you saw today, the couple of times he did venture forward, I mean, I mean, he nearly scored a screamer um, yeah. first of all. And but he just has kind of quality that nobody else really has, and. I've been a bit disappointed in them on the whole. Um, you know, even Christoph Baumgartner was a really sort of smart Aaron Ramsey kind of player for Hoffenheim last year, but he's done absolutely nothing in this tournament. You know, Sasha Kalacic, 17 goals for Stuttgart last season. He's done absolutely nothing. So I think it's kind of the opposite of what they have with the Netherlands, where their three-back system kind of gets the best out of everybody. I think this system for Austria really doesn't help a lot of their players and yeah I'm not sure if they'll maybe look on it with regret because I think they could have done things a lot differently to uh to a few different results yeah absolutely and and we should acknowledge as well that Austria um through well not their own fault his own fault were missing a really important player in a uh, Marco Arnautovic um to, tonight um because he was suspended for being a dick because mm-hmm. he is a dick um, and did you see their lineup graphic as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. My my question was basically going to be what? How do you think Austria? Look, first of all, try. How do you think they were trying to replace Arnautovic? And B, more broadly, what do you think they were trying to do in this game? Because I couldn't work it out. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I wasn't sure either. Um, honestly, I I really liked. If you go through them individually, they have a lot of really good players. I mean, those who watch the Bundesliga in particular will will know a lot about these guys. I mean, Martin Hinteregger is a is a really tenacious sort of all-action centre-back for Frankfurt. Zaba Schlager has been really impressive for Wolfsburg, but I'm not really sure what they were trying to do. I, I mean, they matched the Netherlands with that, that kind of wing-back formation with three defenders. But if you look at how effective the teams were, you know, it's just no competition, really. Um, and yeah, they obviously they had um, Gregorich up front today, who who's another smart player. But they, they they seem to be no cohesion in their attacking play. They kind of just got it wide to to Stefan Leiner, who was just kind of trying to cross. And you know, I just wanted a bit more ingenuity, a bit more uh, creativity in the middle, and it just never came. And then they resorted to to these ambitious, overly ambitious long shots from range, which, let's be honest, are never going to really take you anywhere unless it's something special. And, yeah, they just seem to like a 
general ideas and yeah it was just really disappointing uh, i'm not really sure what what else to say about them i think it it was a, a lot of small decisions that they got wrong have led to a big uh, kind of failure um on the whole and even though they can still qualify of course after beating north macedonia but i don't think even if they do get through i don't see them progressing very far no, indeed. And I guess last one on this game, was there anyone um, on either side that that really stood out for you tonight in this game? I mean, yeah, I think it was Wijnaldum. Um, I mean, obviously Denzel Dumfries has, has added another goal to his, his tally and, you know, he is just the typical wing-back that you want. I mean, obviously the kind of the, the benchmark for wing-backs now is Akraf Hakimi from Inter, but... You know, if, if you're maybe looking for a, a slightly more budget option, I don't think he'd cost too much from from PSV this summer. And he's just up and down that that wing the whole game. He's he's tall and physical. He can win his aerial battles. But, you know, he's got a small eye for goal. And you can see that. I mean, to, to be able to keep up with Marlon there and burst up with him when they exposed that Austria high line was brilliant. And um, I think he deserves a lot of credit. But for me... Wijnaldum was just so crucial for the, for the Netherlands today. He was relentless for the 90 minutes, you know, battling, challenging, going in for duels, but also he needed down. He was able to get his foot on the ball, you know, um, sort of order guys around, make sure that they understood his tempo. And I just think he's such a good player. And I was, I always found it quite strange when when Liverpool fans sort of got tired of him. But obviously, I don't watch them as closely as as they do. Um, but I think he's a top quality player and PSG have kind of struck gold with that as a free signing. Yeah, big time. And and I think it's a, it's a kind of player that PSG actually really need um, as well, particularly if you're going to play Neymar and Mbappe up front. You, I think you need that kind of industry um, in midfield. I think it's a really smart signing for them. Um, so, well, I was going to say the last game of the day it was actually the first game of the day in Ukraine, Ukraine versus North Macedonia, which which turned out to be a really fun, quite eventful game. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Ukraine, um, I, possibly the most left footed football team I've ever seen. <laughs> Um, and and one of those left footers, uh, Yarmolenko, who who went to West Ham and a lot of excitement around him, but obviously hasn't been able to show what kind of player he is at West Ham due to injury. How? And and of course he got a goal and an assist and, and a lovely first goal from um, a nice twist on the Arsenal corner routine with a front post flick on that just happened to be um, a kind of mid air Cruyff turn. Um, how? How highly do you rate Yarmolenko as a talent? I think he's one of those players that you've you've seen for so long, but he's and he's just kind of around. But as you as you said, I mean, he obviously Dortmund signed him from Dynamo Kiev, and it didn't work there at all. And then West Ham picked him up, and he struggled again with injuries, and you know he hasn't quite found his way into the team. He's, I think, maybe not so suited to the Premier League. His defensive work maybe is not so um, astute, shall we say. But, I mean, in terms of Ukraine, I think today was his 42nd goal in, in his 96th cap, which for a right winger is is fairly impressive. Um, and he, he's got that sort of Iron Robin-esque quality of you know what he's going to do, but you you can't stop it. And, you know, the, obviously we saw that amazing goal in the first game against the Netherlands. Um, and I think he's definitely their most sort of threatening player. And if they're going to look to someone 
to maybe get them through a game with a moment of quality or, you know, just give them something a bit special. Um, that's not to, you know, sort of dig on any of their other players. I think Malinowski and, and Yaremchuk in the front three today were, were just as impressive. But I think if, if anyone's going to be that kind of guy for, for Ukraine, it's going to be Yarmolenko. Yeah, definitely. And um, I'm loath to bring up the subject of dark horses with you, Phil, um, after you, after your, and to be fair, I, I think a lot of people were bigging up Turkey before this, but I, I had heard um, some people say that Ukraine had potential for that kind of dark horse tag. How, yeah. how far do you think they can go realistically? I really like them as a team. Um, as you know, dark horses go, I think they were a fairly good shout. They were unbeaten. Uh, in qualifying and I think Andrei Shevchenko has done a, a very decent job there um, a quite sort of under the radar job to be honest but in terms of where they go from here now um, it's difficult to say because I, defensively I still have like one or two slight concerns I mean they play with a very sort of young centre-back um who has actually done really well so far. Um, in the, I think his name is Zobanyi. Zobanyi, I'm not exactly sure on the pronunciation. I apologise for that. But um, a lot of these names are probably going to be butchered by me in, in this tournament. But he's been really good. Um, I really, really like Malinowski. Um, I think he's showing his class with, with Zinchenko in that midfield. I think those two are really smart technical players. And actually the... So kind of surprise for me has been their centre forward Yaremchuk. I think he's been really neat and tidy with his touch. He's very secure. He can hold things up, but he's quite clever in what he does. Like it will be like clever flicks, and you know he took his goal really well today. Um, so you know I'm not ready to discount them, but I think in terms of where they can go, I'm not so hot on their overall prospects. Um, but I definitely think they're they're a more solid team than maybe some give them credit for, and they're you know they're no joke as they've shown in, in qualifying, and maybe just uh, sort of heading into the latter stages, I think people should be maybe keeping one eye open for them because they've got quality. It's just for me about um, can they sort of put it all together. Uh, that's my main concern. Yeah, and I, the, the thing I that I really love about the finish for the second goal as well, I always, like on the replay, I always look at a striker's face and, um, and like, just absolute, just absolutely dead. <laughs> Basically, the face just kind of, yep, one-on-one, yep, okay, no problem, stick that away, just, like, not a flicker um, on the face in, in the finish of that goal. Um, North Macedonia going home, in, in fact, it, it's going to be, going to be a really disappointing end to this group as well because you basically got Netherlands are through North Macedonia out and Austria and Ukraine probably both need a draw to go through so that's probably what's going to happen um, but North Macedonia um, going home uh, after their next game which I, I don't think is is a huge surprise I, I kind of when I was reading up on them I was told you know good team um, no, but they're not. They're not going to get thrashed or anything. But they probably won't have enough to go through. What do you think they can take from this tournament? Well, I mean, regardless of of where they finish, I think even being there at all is a should be a source of immense pride, particularly for um, sort of they are the definition of underdogs. And honestly, 
I could not fault them for effort. They have been so determined, so dogged. Um, they give absolutely everything every game. And honestly, they've been quite fun as well. I mean, mm. you wouldn't really expect that from them. I mean, as you mentioned, they, they kind of lack quality, particularly in forward areas. But I mean, they've got Goran Pandev there. They've got Enes Bardi, who's a, who's a good player. They've got Elif Elmas, who's a good player. And they've kind of funneled through those three. Um, I know Alioski scored today and he was obviously one of their sort of major attacking threats because they're just relentless down the wings and I really enjoy how kind of brave they are and you know I kind of got the feeling from them that they maybe knew that they wouldn't be going through but they were just here to enjoy the moment and give everything they've got and I think they can definitely take um, a lot from this because I'd kind of had them pinned down as a you know, we're going to defend here all, all the game and, you know, try and maybe nick something on the break. But I think they've attacked way more than I expected. And, I, you know, that should be um, a real positive for them because a lot of the teams who maybe aren't considered on par with a lot of the others, it's very easy to kind of sit back and just, you know, hope for something on the break. But I've, they've tried really hard, which I, which I really respect and appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a shame that that Pandev goal was disallowed as well because the finish yeah. was just absolutely incredible. And if nothing else, my favourite stat from the tournament is that Goran Pandev scored his first goal for Macedonia before Jude Bellingham was born. Um, so, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it it makes us all feel horrible, but um, quite a nice stat nonetheless. But Phil, I think that wraps everything up uh, that happened on, what is the day today? Thursday. It's weird during international tournaments, isn't it? You look kind of forget what day of the week it is. Yeah, it's like Christmas holidays, you know, and it's like, today, Wednesday or Thursday? I'm not sure, but... It's just I just know the fixtures and that's it. And obviously on Friday we've got some some really big fixtures, oh, yeah. including England v Scotland. Um, just quickly, how do you see England v Scotland going? Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a tasty game. Uh, lots of passion, lots of. It's going to be honestly. I've got like big Brexit football vibes coming from this one <laughs> with some big tackles and you know the ball in the channel. And I'm yeah really looking forward to it actually because. You know, even though Scotland lost their first game, I, I thought it was quite harsh considering how many chances they created. Yeah. And it's kind of an opportunity to see England again against a different opposition where they're going to be expected to dominate. I know they, they did really well against Croatia, who were subpar on the day, but they're going to have most of the ball. And I think it, you know, is going to ask a lot of different questions for, for Southgate and his side. So, yeah, really looking forward to it. And hopefully um, we sort of that expectation can be matched by the 90 minutes. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think Scotland will make a few changes as well. And and if nothing else, England versus Scotland at eight o'clock on a Friday night um, can't fail. Uh, to, <laughs> just Definitely absolutely not. can't fail. Can't that, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we see Tierney back as well. Um, I Indeed. I, yeah, because that will increase my sort of interest in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And he's missed so much football this season. I think he really deserves it. But um, we'll see how that comes out. Um, and obviously, naturally, um, given that it's England v Scotland, that we'll have an Irishman in the presenter's chair tomorrow. Paul will present tomorrow evening's podcast. I will be back on Saturday and Sunday evening with Phil. Um, but that's that's that. That's a, a wrap for this episode. Phil, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, for coming on. 
And we'll be back again tomorrow evening with another edition of our Euro Dailies Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Wow, that's a mouthful. See you on the other side.